Dear Jesus, thank you for being our high priest. Thank you for all of your work as our priest and being devoted to our complete holiness. Lord, we come to you sinful, needing cleansing from your spirit and your blood. Um, But we are thankful that you have promised our cleansing. You are faithful and just uh, to cleanse us from all of our sin. And Lord, I thank you that you are in the process of preparing us for eternal glory. I just, I pray that you would bless our time studying your word today and that the book of Numbers would communicate to us the glory of Christ and um, the wonder of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're in Numbers 25, uh, 10 through the end of the chapter. Coleman, would you run back there and get the... um, cordless mic and then hand it to your dad he can read for us numbers 25 10 through the end to the end of that chapter i knew you were gonna i just know how it i said he's gonna say to the end of the bible <laughs> to the end of the old testament more here. <laughs> the lord said to moses Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Therefore tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood, because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites." The name of the Israelite who was killed with the uh, Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Selu, the leader of the Simeonite family. And the name of the Midianite woman who was put to death was Kozbi, daughter of Zur, a tribal chief of a Midianite family. The Lord said to Moses, treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them because they treated you as enemies when they deceived you in the affair of Peor, and their sister Cosby, the daughter of a Midianite leader, the woman who was killed when the plague came as a result of Peor. Okay. All right, if you remember from last week, um, the Israelites, uh, many of them get uh, deceived and enticed and actually begin worshiping Not only do they have sexual uh, relationships with the Midianites, but they actually begin to worship the God of Baal. And coming on the heels of everything we've been learning about how uh, Yahweh is the true God, uh, no other gods are like him, uh, Balaam can't get God to not bless his people, all that kind of stuff, it's rather shocking to see uh, the Israelites themselves worshiping uh, Baal, and, um, and yet that's the issue. This is the problem of God's people. We, we, uh, it, it's bound up in 
are slavery, our slavery to sin, that we are, as Calvin says, an idle factory. We, we uh, perpetually uh, refuse to love God and uh, seek after the, um, the pleasures of the world, but even just seek after blessing, happiness in life, apart from submission to Yahweh. So, in the midst of this, God begins to send a plague upon his people, 24,000 of them are killed, and the plague is stopped when the son of Aaron uh, grabs a spear and actually, well, I should, let's, um, even though this plague is occurring, even though people are dying, one Israelite, in the midst of watching the plague spread, basically takes him and his, his uh, Midianite girl, and they basically just flaunt themselves against God saying we, we'd rather have Baal so you can imagine someone who's eaten manna all through the wilderness they've been provided for they've been loved and uh, God is uh, bringing them through they've, they've actually just conquered two kingdoms uh, here all these things and then and then these people just uh, with utter flagrance basically say we're okay with uh, living in sin uh, choosing another god besides Yahweh. And Phineas, the, the, this priest, grabs a spear and sends the spear through both of them at once. And as he does that, the plague stops. And so uh, this, what we have, what, what Howard read today, is the evaluation, kind of the uh, interpretation of what's occurred. And so I wanted to get... Uh, throw it out to you guys. What are the lessons? From Phineas. And there could be many. And they could be varied. So um, as you read through this. I'd like to hear some of your thoughts. Uh, raise your hand. Coleman give her the microphone. Or do, Oh do you have it still? Yeah take it over to her. I know, but you people on the on the you, you we can hear you, but the people uh, on the uh, oh, dear. internet, okay. whatever they can't hear. So go ahead. So my thought and question from last Sunday and and now what we just read again is: Do we have a Phineas? Do we need a Phineas? <laughs> is there a is the church now to be the spear in our culture? Okay. So okay. All right. So. Um, so you're, you're equating Phineas with the church and the, the, uh, stabbing is the culture. Okay. All right. Yeah, no, that, that's, that, that's good. I, I'm just, like I say, understanding this is not an easy thing. So that's actually, um, one sense that, that, uh, I mean, I'm not advocating this. You're, I don't think you're advocating a literal spear. <laughs> so, but, okay. Um, other thoughts before I even make more comments on this. So, questions, too. I mean,
Uh, hand the mic to Kate for me. Um, at the end of chapter 24, um, we just uh, we kind of turned around to, to 25, and in the meantime, back at the ranch, you know, they're they're uh, uh, committing harlotry with the women of Moab, and uh, so that's in 25, yeah, right in the beginning of 25, mm-hmm. yeah, and then then there's the plague, and, and well. It just seemed that that took something like that to uh, to stop the plague. Well, it got everyone's attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I can see how that would uh, make everyone cease and desist, that, that sort of activity. <laughs> uh, uh, that's, it's too bad that it took something like that, but that's, that's how much it took to get everyone's attention. Okay. Not that, that that satisfied God's wrath. Uh, fully, but um, well, it actually says that 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 God in the in our text, it actually right. says that the, that it like makes atonement, which yeah. is strange to us. I mean, this is a very difficult passage. I, I'm you know keep keep giving me your thoughts. So uh, uh, here you go. I'll take oh, oh, Frank. You got the yeah. mic. Go ahead, and then we'll give it to Can John. Go me? ahead. Is it on? Yep. Okay. Um, were the was. Were the people like Phineas Spirit? Were they being intimate in public? Is that what it's about? It's um, less okay. It's less. It's less about sex than it is about idolatry, choosing another god. Now, I it is about sex in the sense that sex was the sex was the um, the, uh, the the gateway drug into idolatry. All right, so um, it it you know it's kind of like Solomon, right? He had many wives, and that was not good. But those wives led him into the worship of uh, idol, idols other than God. So so uh, and and like I just tried to explain, I'll say it again. The plague is occurring; people are dying as a direct response of God saying, "You." Not just these two people, many Israelites had been joining themselves and worshiping the God of Baal. They have been 40 years in the wilderness being taught that the one God is their God. They're just about ready to go into the promised land and they are worshiping another God. Okay, so this is a serious problem. It's not just a couple people, it's, you know, but the, the, what singled out these, this one couple was that even in the midst of God judging them through the plague, they were still sticking their nose up against God, saying, we're going to worship Baal. This reminds me of Absalom um, committing adultery with his father's uh, concubine. Yeah, but see, again, you're, sticking, you're focused on the sex here. The sex has already occurred. It is their worship of Baal that is the issue. It's not just sex. I mean, it is, sex is a very terrible thing, but what is the focus of this is that they have basically snubbed their nose at Yahweh in order to worship other gods, okay? Well, you know, in the second commandment, um, 
God says that he's a jealous God, not willing to share affection with other gods. And, and here in this text we just read, uh, Phineas is the same way. He is jealous with his jealousy. Okay, so God wants the absolute loyalty from his people. Okay, that's what it means. He's a jealous God. It's the it's the um, it's likened to a husband or a wife wanting their spouse to only love them. It's that kind of jealousy. God is in a in a covenant slash marriage relationship with his people. Therefore, they should love him because he has devoted himself to them, and there there should be this reciprocal relationship. The people have basically turned from God and put their affection on another God. Okay? Okay, go ahead. Well, let me just say one thing real quick to finish uh, John's thought. What he's saying is that the jealousy of God for this unique relationship, Phineas, Phineas displays it. Like he... He has the right attitude. Like, he's adopted in himself the same attitude that God has. Okay, go ahead. I'm trying to think. I was thinking, like, is... So, are you saying it's only because it's his people, like, he's jealous in that situation? Like, I guess today, like, our culture's idolatry looks a little different, but it still exists. Um, And turning away from the creator. And, like, is that, I guess, like... Is it only for when you see Christians or the church turning away or the Israelites turning away where he's more angry? Or is it just in general that people are turning away from their creator, worshiping whatever it is, if it's sex or idol? Like, I don't think people are worshiping idols necessarily. I think we see a lot of worship of self today. But, like, those are all turning away from the creator, like, who made them to worship something else. Right. So, so, so there is... Um, you don't have to be a member of God's people to make God angry, okay? He is the creator of the whole world. Genesis clearly taught us in the flood that he's able to bring wrath upon everyone, right? So that's, that's clear. But what we're dealing with here is not God's ability to bring wrath on the rest of the world. We're dealing with God choosing one particular people and he chooses that people to save them. It's not, it's not, that, um, it's not that God's not going to judge the world. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's clear. And this, it does uh, go a little bit to uh, uh, what Emmy's saying. It, it's not... It's not a judgment on culture, this, this particular thing. I mean, that, the flood is a judgment on culture <laughs> because God's going to just condemn all people that aren't perfectly righteous. So in this sense, it's not really... You might argue that Phineas is this lady that's connected to um, the Israelite. She gets killed too. So in a sense, culture does get speared here. Um, but, but the problem is, 
is that Phineas, this is, this is God's people right here. These are to be his holy chosen people, the ones that he said, I'm going to get married to. You're, you're my spouse. Yes, do I, do I care that other people will follow me? Yes, but you're my, my bride. You're the one I love. And so the fact that, that God's own people are chasing after other gods is more the connection here. Does that make sense? So, so Phineas is a priest, and he is spearing the church. Does that make sense? He's, he's actually spearing those in the church. So, and it, it, it's, uh, there is a connection between sex and idolatry uh, because this is one of God's good gifts that he gives to his people, and yet this is the, the, the seeking after this pleasure is actually leading people into idolatry, right? I mean, that's, that's what's happening, okay? Okay, um, I want to make sure. So, you're, you're, so, you're, so it's not just God's angry at immorality in the world. It's his people have chased after. It, it'd be like your husband going after another lady. Yes. Yes. What's the, what's the very first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Well, here's what they're doing. They are chasing after other gods. Okay. All right. Go over here. Ken and then Susan. I was, I was very impressed. Very impressed. <laughs> um, Calvin also brings up something. It says, Inasmuch as God constantly forbids his people to take vengeance, it is surprising that the people of Israel should now be instigated to do so as if they were not already more than enough disposed to it, and so on and so on. So it's, that's an unusual thing because typically... Right, so, so typically, you know, uh, be kind, don't have wrath, and in this particular case, God, it seems to go against the idea of being kind. You just go right in, spear somebody. I cannot imagine doing this physically. I mean, what it would, in that day, to be, you know, to have a priest do this, uh, it would have been shocking, no, no question about it. So, uh, and it is designed to shock God's people, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that the shock value is. Well, let me just say this: the shock value is very short-lived. This does not cure Israel's addiction to idolatry. Okay, nor does harshness. It can have its place. But nor does harshness itself lead to true repentance. So, um, okay, Susan, you want you had your hand up. Try to give you guys your thoughts before I give you some. I of just mine. thought it was rather interesting that after this extreme and violent action, God restates His covenant peace, uh, covenant of peace with Aaron, uh, Aaron's son. Yes, Phineas. Yeah, He actually affirms the. Phineas's priesthood, like your line is going to be blessed because of this action. Okay. All right, more thoughts. Okay. 
Okay, so how do you, yes, it's extreme, but it's also normal. You hit it right on the head. It's extreme, but it's normal. So how is Phineas Christ? There's at least two ways. And, huh? Yes, so in one sense, um, the priest spears uh, you, in another sense, he spears another. So, um, Phineas cares about God's holiness and God's jealousy. If you're going to be a good priest, you need to care about total holiness. You have to be committed to this. Now, what tells us that Jesus was zealous for God's holiness? Well, one aspect of it is that he takes the spear into his side that you deserved. Okay? So, um, I think this is secondary to the passage, but I think it's true. That he, he bears in himself the punishment that you deserve. So instead of him spearing you, because everybody in this room, in one way or another, has been guilty of idolatry. And you deserve it. Speared. He takes the spear in his side so you wouldn't have it. Okay, But why does he take the spear in his side? Why does he not just say, ah, you know, let's be nice. Howard's a decent guy. He's pretty good. Why, why do we have to spear anybody? Let's just let him in. Because Jesus cares about God's holiness. He will not let anyone into his presence, into his blessing, apart from holiness. This is where we get the doctrine of justification. Okay? That's why it's so important, okay? Hold on. But there is an aspect that Jesus Christ spears you. He convicts you of sin. But is it not true that you have been blank with Christ? Crucified with Christ. So in other sense, he takes you with him up onto the cross so that you can be crucified with him on the cross. So this way he spears you. And this is what we usually think of in sanctification. Okay? Now think about this. Do you want a Savior who is jealous for God's holiness? Do you want a high priest who is jealous for God's holiness? Or do you want a high priest who could eh, let things slide? I want a God who's committed to holiness such that he bears the, the just penalty for my sin, justification. But I also want one who is committed, and here's the key, to rooting out every bit of idolatry in my heart. Okay? That's what I want. So, so I don't want Jesus to just kind of overlook my sin. And believe me, I still have my sin. 
I, I, I feel it. I go, Lord, I shouldn't, I, you should judge me. Take me to hell. Just for the sins of the past week, I should go to hell. <laughs> All right, so I am trusting in that he speared himself, and I'm also trusting in that he is going to truly crucify my sinful heart completely. Now, this is me looking at Christ, but there's one third way, and this is probably the most, the most obvious in the text. And that is that we think God will only judge those outside the church. But God cares so much about holiness that if there's someone in his visible church that clearly demonstrates that they want nothing to do with holiness, he's not afraid to spear them. And that means judge them. This, this man and this woman are judged to an eternal death. There's no question about that in the text. And it is shocking, and it should be fearful. And I think that sometimes in our society, if there's a, if there's a message that in the midst of preaching the crucifixion and preaching forgiveness and cleansing and love of Christ... The church, if we want to be like Phineas, we need to tell the church that if you don't ever want to deal with your sin, if, you don't, if you're not like broken before God and trusting in Christ and clinging to him to try to renew you and change you, there is a spearing that's going to come, even upon the church. Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. And so it is a shocking thing to the church as well, and that is... That's a message that maybe we need to make sure that people get. You can't read this without going, I don't want to be like that guy. (laughs) I don't want to be kicked out. I don't want to be judged like the people that are outside, right? Like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, um, yes, and a good example of this is David, right? David is the king. In many ways, he's a super king. He's done great things. But then he himself falls into sin, sexual sin, but also the sin of murder. You know, he's breaking the commandments, and he deserves God's wrath. Does that mean that he's necessarily going to be kicked out? No, he is confronted with his sin. The Spirit convicts him. He then repents, and he experiences um, God's continued sanctification in his life. And I would argue that God is in some way spearing David as he's being made more and more sanctified. Are you following this? So do you deserve spearing? Yes. Do you, not, you want to flee from spearing? Yes. <laughs> do, you, do you embrace spearing? Yes. All of those, I think, are important because you have a priest. You have a priest who's committed to your holiness, and you, you can't just be like, eh, who cares? God will let me in. I'll do what I want. I can go on worshiping these other gods. He's going to let us all in anyway. You know, if you have those kind of attitudes, you're going to experience his wrath. Just the way it is. All right, now questions. Now that I've spit my wad out there, uh, what are your thoughts? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think Ananias and Sapphira um, are often, there are places in God's history where there's like some new work of redemption or something really big going on, and God like, at those times, elevates the standard, not that he's elevating the standard and then reducing it again, but he's just giving you a glimpse as to this is what the real standard is. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. But what I want you to get is that you are God's people, and as God's people, having a high priest who is going to bat for you, fighting to advocate for you, to forgive you, he's also the very one who's deeply committed to changing you. And you need to know both of those. If you just have one and the other, it doesn't make sense in the gospel. And Jesus being, what does it say that the, the passage, it's not talking about Jesus, it's talking about the Spirit, and it says that the Spirit jealously yearns within you. That Spirit within you is jealously yearning to make you more like Christ, make you more like Him. So, uh, turn to Hebrews 10. Twenty-six. The book of Hebrews is largely ten, almost ten chapters, nine and a half chapters, is about the exaltation of Christ as your priest. And then, after one, what I consider one of the most glorious statements that you, even you who are still struggling with sin, have access into the very throne of grace because you've got this high priest who is, who is ushering you in, even though you're still at times guilty and failing and not who you're supposed to be. Praise God, you've got this priest that brings you into God's presence. But, verse 26, if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of the judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. So there you go. It's like, as much as I, I'm, as a Christian, when I fall into sin, I, I, I commit some sin, I, I f- immediately feel the sense that I deserve God's wrath. It drives me to Christ. I cling to him as my priest. I'm asking him to not only forgive me of my past, but I'm asking him to continue the work of changing me, making me who I should be, and therefore I'm striving to try to walk with him uh, keep in step with the Spirit, those kind of things. And, and that gives me peace and comfort that even though I'm still falling short, I have peace with God and he will carry me the rest of the way. But it doesn't make me flippant in my sin. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. It's apostasy. And 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 I would argue that 
um, that even though uh, someone has been kicked out uh, and in her situation looks very grim, uh, humanly speaking, not much hope, uh, I would still argue that the arm of God is not too short and that he could bring her back into the faith. But it would be a work of God, and it would only be because here she is. Let's just say she's, get the, get the name right here. She is, uh, the name of this, uh, Zimri. I'm going to make it the Israelite, not Cosby, the other lady. So she's Zimri right here, and the only way she's ever going to be saved is if Jesus actually comes in and sets a spear to her sinful nature and crucifies that and brings her back to himself. But it will be through repentance and faith. You can't just say, ignore the repentance and faith side of it. You can't just say, ah, yeah, she was a Christian, so she'll go to heaven. No, there's a real wrath that that will be experienced if she remains in the state that she's in, and she should fear that. Whether she was in the church or not, she she may reject everything right now, It'd be hard for this guy, Zimri, to, to actually reject that God was real. I mean, he was sending down manna every day. He was, you know, the glory of God was over the tabernacle. There's all these signs of that, and he's just in the face of it saying, I don't care. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's a scary place to be, but I would still ask, until she dies, breathes her last breath, I would still be praying that God would mercifully bring her back to himself. So... Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that really comes in at the end of Numbers 25, uh, beginning in verse 16, where he says, um, you are now supposed to harass the Midianites and strike them down. So because you have a high priest who's done what he's supposed to do and is committed to who he's supposed to do, you too, as members of God's people, should fight. Now, we could see them, the Midianites, as actual physical enemies, but our battle is against spirit, spiritual battle. So I think you're right. The church, and particularly the teachers of the church, are called to communicate the truth, which is what I'm trying to do here. Right? You could, you could communicate this, this passage where Christ would be empty from it, and it's just wrath. You better straighten yourself up because <laughs> wrath is coming. Yeah, that's it. Um, uh, and that wouldn't be truth, but you could also communicate this passage as if repentance and holiness don't matter. You know, Jesus is... Jesus has taken the spear. Therefore, there's, there's no sense in which you need to ever fear being speared. That would be wrong too. That's not the truth either, right? Um, so you have to have the truth of the gospel. And when the church rejects that truth, uh, they become a synagogue of Satan. 
they are no longer a true church. The problem is, um, uh, well, let's see. Let me try to put it in a small context. So um, if I were to start teaching something that was opposed to Scripture and opposed to the Westminster Confession of Faith, it is your responsibility, it is the responsibility of our elders to, to report me to the presbytery. And it's the presbytery's responsibility to defrock me, take away my, my ability to actually teach in this church. So there's an obligation to that. So yes, we're to be, that is, to, that is a very important thing. Um, you have to be careful when it comes to truth you have to distinguish, like, what is the core, what are, what are at the heart of the truth, and are there some uh, extraneous things that we might disagree on that, are, that we, just, we can't be splitting hairs all the time and kicking people out. Some people are so pure that the church, um, everything's core, and unless you believe everything, then there's, then there's no unity in the church, and that's not a healthy place to be. But yes, the truth of the gospel is very important. And the New Testament tells us that there will arise within you false teachers. So it is the responsibility of the members of the church and the ruling elders of the church to try to maintain what is being taught in the church. Very important. It's also important that if there are, y'all are sinners, y'all are not perfect. But if there is open and blatant, unrepentant sin, okay, blatant, open, unrepentant, I'm doing this, and I don't care. Sounds like what your friend is like, you know. Uh, it is the duty of the leadership of the church to then excommunicate that person. So there are ways in which the spear going in, we don't get to actually put a spear in somebody, thankfully, but we, we the, the discipline of the church is... Our confession says declarative, or book of church order, declarative and um, spiritual, I think is what it says. So I usually tell people whenever they become a member of the church, we can discipline you, we can't fine you, we can't spank you, we can't put you in a corner, we can't put you in a church, in some kind of cell in the church, we can't, we can't crucify you, we can't do anything to you. But what we can do, we can warn you, we can prevent you from taking communion, and we can excommunicate you. You're like, well, that's not a big deal. <laughs> well, I just go to another church, whatever. But all of those are symbolic and spiritual statements that if you don't deal with your sin truly, then you will be speared by Christ because he will cast out all who don't deal with their sin. It's just the way it is. And I, I try to err on the side of, God is so gracious, he is so kind, be patient with people, don't just be quick to judge, all those kind of things. But if you don't teach the fact that God will judge his own people, you're not teaching the truth. So, and I think those are both very important things, if there's going to be a true church. Does that answer your question? And so we do spear the church, okay? We have, somebody has to say, that's wrong, that's not true. You know, oh, you can get to heaven being just a Jew who doesn't believe in Jesus. Or you can get to heaven by being a Muslim. Or you can get to heaven by just being a pretty good guy. No, we have to say, no, that's wrong. You know, put a spear in that. That's, that's evil. So. so, 
I only got my one emeritus elder in here today. John, does that sound consistent with the confession? Okay, so uh, last thing I want to say on this before moving to the next chapter is just that um, if you think about people being judged, it's pretty simple. God will judge evil. And you think about people being saved, those who are holy will experience eternity with God. That's pretty simple. The problem, and this is the struggle of all of Scripture, is that Jesus is is taking people from here and bringing them to there. And so it's like the circles sometimes appear like this. And you don't always really know where's the line of distinction. And it gets really difficult sometimes. And you have to leave things in God's hands a lot of times because you can't fully judge the heart. But it's just, it's like how can he save the sinner, that is, a, that is an incredibly difficult question. The older I become a Christian and the more I study the Bible, this is the dilemma. I mean, when Adam and Eve sinned, God could have just said, okay, you're done, let me go create somebody new. But the, when he says, I am going to take your descendants, Adam and Eve, and I'm going to save them, that is stupendous, unbelievable, that he can save sinners. So... Um, So as we are concerned for holiness, let's just remember that we're even more concerned for God in his holiness saving sinners. And that's that's important. So all right, numbers twenty six. This ought to be fun. <laughs> we'll just get started with this today. Um, let's read uh, 1 through 4a. Um, uh, to, to commanded Moses. So who's got a microphone now? All right, let's give that to Mary Dunn. After the plague... The Lord said to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from twenty years old and upward, by their fathers' houses, all in Israel who are able to go to war. And Moses and Eleazar, the priest, spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from twenty years old and upward, as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay. Um, in the in the earlier census, I'll read the beginning of Numbers one. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come up by the land of saying, "Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head." From 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. Um, In the first census, and I'm trying to compare these two censuses, 
in the first census, God only speaks with Moses. Who does he speak with here? Moses and Eleazar. Any idea why that might be? That's right. Moses isn't even going into the land, is he? And there seems to be a transference from Moses. Moses actually is one of these unique guys that functions as prophet, priest, and king. He, he kind of functions in all three capacities. Uh, David does this a little bit too. But, um, but Moses is going out, and God is going to separate these powers. Uh, and so he's going to not give this to the king. Ongoing. They don't have a king at this point, but uh, he's going to give it to the priest to be the one, to be the cleric, to actually run this, this um, census. Um, the location of the census, where they are when they take the census, is very different. In Numbers 1, they are in the wilderness of Sinai. Now they are on the plains of Moab. Um, the plague has just occurred, those sorts of things. Um, let's look at verses 4b through 7. Uh, Emmy, would you read those? Or uh, let's, have, um, let's have Frank read those for us. 4b through 7. I'm sorry, who? Frank. As the Lord commanded Moses and the children of Israel, which went forth out of the land of Egypt, Reuben, the eldest son of Israel, the children of Reuben, Hanak, of whom cometh the family of the Hanakites of Palu, the family of the Paluites of Hezron, the family of the Hezronites of Carmi, the family of the Carmites. These are the families of the Reubenites, and they that were numbered of them were forty and three thousand and seven hundred and thirty. To what verse? Uh, just through seven. Yeah, you got it. You got it. Okay, so first off, look at the end of verse four. Who is being numbered? The people who came out of Egypt. Think about this. The people who came out of Egypt. Now, assuming that there were, as they came up out of Egypt, a good number of kids during that time, under 20 years age, right, but in this census, are there not many who are being numbered who were born in the wilderness? In what sense can we call the people born in the wilderness? In what sense can we identify them as those who came up out of Egypt? Right. It's one aspect of what I would call intergenerational 
connection. So, so um, this current generation should not separate themselves from Israel and the generation who came up out of Egypt. They are one people. You today are united with this one people. Okay, God has a people whom he's saving. You know, um, Coleman, this is just putting in, you know, one of the reasons why we baptized you as a child is because you are a part of the salvation that your parents are a part of, and they are a part of the salvation that is in Christ, which is a part of this, these people came up out of Egypt. You're a part of that. Doesn't mean you don't have to personally embrace Christ yourself. Doesn't mean that you couldn't be speared that we just talked about if you just reject God entirely, all that kind of stuff. But it's still, you are connected with them. You're not just some new people that God started. Like, oh, forget the first generation. Let's start over again with a new people. That's not the way it works. So even this census, they are numbering Israel, the ones who came up out of Egypt. So in a very real sense, we came up out of Egypt. Okay? We're united with those who've come up out of Egypt. By the way, this is this kind of thinking, I teach it all the time. It's what makes the Old Testament relevant to us. Um, but it, there's huge sections of the church that don't, the larger church that just don't even make this connection. Um, that there's not a generational connection, there's not a real connection with the people of God in the Old Testament. Um, but this is, this is like a fundamental thing to being covenant theologian. So, uh, you can make distinctions between the first generation and the second generation. They're not just one as if there's no individuality. There are distinctions, but they are one people, and they are bonded together. Okay? Very important. Okay, uh, let's just, let's kind of then, the first uh, group we deal with is who? What's the first tribe? Reuben. Any specifics you see about Reuben? He's the firstborn. Uh, you you would have to keep flipping back to Old Test to the first census. In forty years of wandering, Reuben loses just about three thousand people. So. Um, they were uh, 46,500 at the beginning. They're down to 43,730. Uh, we're also given some specific clans, so there seems to be a, a greater separation of the, true, of the tribes as they go through this. Um, yeah, we'll just keep going. Uh, verses 8 through 11. And the sons of Palu, I won't make you guys read these names, Eliab, the sons of Eliab, Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram. These are the Dathan and Abiram chosen from the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, and they became a warning. So... These verses, just in case anyone forgot, in the census, they like step outside of the census, the numbers of it, and just say, don't want you to forget, we want to remind you of Korah's rebellion, 
And these are the two guys who tried to stand before Moses, uh, who refused to stand before Moses when, when he summoned them. Um, they were the ones uh, guilty of contempt of court. Um, and, and the same warning of Phineas that we just learned was also the le- lesson for Dathan and Abiram, uh, and that is you do not want to reject God's provision of a priest. You don't want to rebel against God's priesthood. Uh, he's the only way. Um, uh, also, um, let's see here, verse 11, but the sons of Korah did not die. Why is that important? Right, it seemed like at Korah's rebellion that they all die, right? But obviously some of them did not, right? Exactly, that's what, yeah, so the sons of Korah become actually a distinct group within Israel, and they write many of the songs. They kind of become like these uh, perpetual singers, you know, uh, during David's time, much later. But the fact that they still exist, even though this is their heritage, is kind of getting back to what I told you about your friend, you still pray for her redemption. And what is more, if she has kids, which she may not, you know, but if she did or she adopted some kids, you should pray for their kids because God may redeem them. You know, you just don't know what he's going to do to redeem people. So in our day, we're seeing so much of the immorality drop off in our culture that we're, we could fall into, all we want to do is kind of shield ourselves from evil when we have to keep remembering we're, God's still saving people that are lost in this world. So, and the sons of Korah are a good example to us. Okay, we're going to stop right there. And uh, if you want to, you can. Um, I will give you my synopsis next week of Numbers chapter 26 um, and uh, try to go through it rather quickly, try to bring up some of the, uh, the notes on that, the important aspects of it. But, uh, yeah. We're on verse 12, so. Father, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you so much for cleansing my heart. Um, Lord, my old nature is just as nasty as it ever was, and I'm thankful for the new nature, and I'm thankful for your word and spirit, which help me to put to death my sinful heart. Um, Lord, Uh, May the attitude of Phineas live in me that I might want to crucify my own sin. Um, And Lord, may may it also be in in the church that we would be diligent in trying to maintain the truth and to, um, to not be flippant when it comes to sin. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.